And the, uh, the government's argument would be a very significant departure from the established precedent that we have to view plea bargains um, at their black letter intent. And the government has a hard burden here. Um, I think we objected properly at the district court. I believe we're all here on de novo review today. And my concern here is that Mr. Carneal did not get the benefit of the deal, is that there was a 60-day window. The government wants you to believe that the fact that he had notice of potential restitution claims is sufficient to uh, satisfy that requirement, that contract requirement, that the government make its restitution claims within that 60-day window. And that is simply not what this agreement says, is that they have a 60-day window to bring these additional claims, and they failed to bring it in that window. And there's a reason for that. The defense bar has been asking routinely the, the DOJ for this language in the, these plea agreements so we can help close these child pornography cases is that one of the concerns that criminal defendants have repeatedly in these cases, there's an open-ended window on restitution. And so, you know, I regularly do these cases, and it helps me close these cases because I can talk to my client about what the scope of restitution is. Is it one defendant, or sorry, is it one victim or 10 or 20? I don't have access to the FBI trove of, of uh, victims. And so we rely on trying to close these cases by me being able to tell my client, well, we're going to close these restitution claims in 60 days. But you knew how many victims there were, right? No question about it. We did. And so the only thing here is that at first, Mr. Carneal was completely on board with restitution and agreeing to pay it. He did agree to pay it. But he also agreed to this additional provision that those claims be brought within 60 days. And once he got to prison, he took the position that we're arguing today is that he had the benefit of the bargain. He went to jail, as he agreed to, but the government was supposed to bring restitution claims within 60 days, and because it failed to do so, that they're barred from doing so. And that's why we're asking that claim today. So I, I think with the case law in this is very clear. I think the government has the burden of showing that intent and the interpretation I was disappointed with the district court decision, but I think the, the judge followed the law as it applies to restitution. We're asking you to strictly apply strict performance to the plea agreement. But what about, it? was it new losses? Isn't that the distinction here, whether they're new or further losses, as the statute says? Right. Is that, so many of these victims have been victimized over and over again, and that they um, very often have... Um, pro bono lawyers that will go, and in each case where a criminal defendant like Mr. Carneal and the, the 10 other guys or the 100 other guys that were prosecuted, each of those people would be responsible for restitution for that victim. The victim can also choose not to stop asking for restitution. So if there's a new claim for restitution, Mr. Carneal has one, but there was 10 other victims before that, that's what really we're talking about here. But it's not a new, it's a new claim. It's just the loss. Isn't that the, the of new losses? That's what your plea agreement talks about. Right, but it's the statutory losses. basis of that is right. there's an is automatic the, $3,000. Is, is the further losses, right? So you already knew that Patty had losses, correct? We assume so because there's that statutory amount. 
those, her actually out-of-pocket costs may have been covered by defendants before us. And so that's the, the reason we have that language is because many of these victims in this case, um, they have been re-victimized, but the statute says that they get $3,000 no matter what. So that's, that's the nuance here is that um, we don't know if they have actual out-of-pocket or if the actual out-of-pocket has been already paid with previous restitution. And so because there's that $3,000 as a statutory benchmark, um, we use that additional loss language. So the, is this the, would we say this is the 21st victim? Or is this the 20th victim? I, I'm just, this is just a simple question about the numbers. Oh, the numbers. You know, I think that there's an argument here to be made for one additional victim that, that wasn't, uh, we didn't well, let's know assume about. that this is an additional victim. I'm just asking about the numbers. Is I think this, if there was an additional victim. Is this, is this the 20th or the 21st? Only the 21st. This is the 21st. So 1 through 20, we knew about for certain before we went into sentencing. And you had th those amounts were taken care of and, and established. They were established, and those were certainly not made within the 60-day window. We didn't know about the 21st. I think there's an argument to be made that, that that one was certainly additional because no one knew. Well, wait, you knew about it a week before sentencing, right? Am I correct? 21? Yeah, 21, a week before sentencing, right? We no? knew about it a week before sentencing. Yeah, yes. right. Go ahead. So I was just trying to actually... Give so wasn't actually, didn't the government seek restitution for the 21st victim within the 60-day period after sentencing? No. They didn't seek restitution until months afterwards. We knew about it, but they didn't actually move for restitution until after the 60-day window closed. I thought everybody knew that, yeah, this is going to be a restitution um, amount for this one, and uh, all that's in question is the dollar figure. That not, is that incorrect? Well, that's not our argument. Our argument is that we all knew about this coming up, that there was a duty for the government to bring their claim within the 60-day window, and then they didn't bring their claim until outside the 60-day window. So it's not a question of failure of notice. We knew about it. It's a question of the government acting within the window. And that's what the language he bargained for in the plea agreement states. But didn't the appellate, didn't the, uh, appellate know that the identity of the 21st victim and the amount, $3,000 before sentencing? I, I think so. I think that that's, it, it's fair that we knew about all of those claims. So what's the, I thought this was just the, the a delay in documentation. I, I can't tell you why the government failed to hit that window. Um, I mean, it's not in the record. I've certainly had, had conversations with the government about why that they chose to wait until afterwards. Um, they were trying to basically substantiate, I think, the claim against number 21. Yeah. Uh, but that's not in the record. But didn't the district court make clear at, at sentencing that restitution would be ordered for the 21st victim? did say that, but that's not the benefit of the plea bargain. The government should not have moved for that because they are outside the window. And that's what the, Mr. Carneal agreed to in the plea agreement. So it's, I'm not arguing that the judge wasn't acting as a judge should because she was following the statute. But when we're interpreting plea agreements, 
They have to be strictly construed. And the government made a deal. And they were supposed to bring their their motion for restitution within that window, and they decided to bring it outside the window. And that's what we're asking you to strictly construe, is that, you know, what the danger of this argument is, is that if the government's basically saying, well, we made a deal in the plea agreement, but because there is this law that says we can still bring restitution claims, we're allowed to do it. Well, I mean, if the defense gets to do that, think of the floodgates that would open up in plea agreements, is that we always, defendants always waive appeal, right? But they have a, a statutory right of appeal. And if you follow this argument, now everyone can just disregard that part of a plea agreement because there's a statute that says they get to do something and they'd show up here and see hundreds of appeals. <laughs> you are into your rebuttal, but it's Any your... questions? I'll reserve. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Gingrich. Good morning again, Your Honors. May it please the court. David Genrick for the government. Um, I'd like to sort of unwind and in the government's view um, kind of take issue with the conflating of the various mandatory and non-mandatory restitution provisions that are issued here as set forth in the restitution paragraph. There are really two statutes and then one agreement pursuant to statute that give rise to restitution obligations in this case. The first statute is the Mandatory Restitution Act. The second statute is 18 U.S.C. 2259. And the third is the defendant's independent agreement pursuant to 3663AA3, that he'll pay any individual identified restitution. Those three sources of authority are all identified in the first two sentences of the written plea agreement. It indicates that Carnell agrees and understands that he owes restitution under 2259. That's a child pornography-specific provision. And that's where the $3,000 arises. And it's important not to conflate his general agreement to pay any individual with the statutory amount of $3,000 under 2259. Secondly, 3663A is a Mandatory Restitution Victim Act provision. And third, and importantly, the defendant said, notwithstanding the fact that I'm required to pay restitution under those two provisions, which relate to the offense of conviction, here a distribution offense related to a, a specific amount of images distributed in May, as alleged in the indictment, I'm also agreeing to pay independently restitution to any individual who's identified by Nick Mick or in the course of the investigation, full stop. And as this court has recognized in cases cited in the government's brief, and the government drew a particular attention to Williams and Marsh, but there are at least six cases in total cited at page 22, this court enforces those agreements separate and apart from whether uh, the appeal waiver should be enforced. Where is that language you just quoted? It's the second sentence of paragraph 9 of the plea agreement. Pursuant to 18 U.S.C. Page 8 of the plea agreement, right? That's correct. Okay. Pursuant to 18 U.S.C. section 3663AA3, Carneal agrees to pay restitution to any individual whose child pornography image or video he possessed, distributed, received, Etc. as determined in the course of the investigation or by NCMEC. That is a broader... Okay, agreement. now, that is your headline. I get it, to the story. But you notice how the sentence is worded about Carneal agrees. That's about eight lines later. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. If victims are identified and come forward before he's sentenced, and that's the 21st victim, the government may seek mandatory restitution within 60 days of discovering new losses as provided in that section. So three things about that, Your Honor, yeah. and it, it, they're all text-based. First of all, the sentence says, if victims are identified. 
And that's why, in the government's view, it's important to distinguish between the, the three sources of authority here. 2259 and the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act are limited to victims. They apply only to victims, and in this case, that would be only to victims whose pornography images were distributed on the date of offense. So the sentence it reads, if victims are identified, he's agreed to pay any individual, not just victims. Secondly, it says the government may seek mandatory restitution. Mandatory restitution is, of course, inherent in the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act, and 2259 also indicates that restitution is a shall, that it's mandatory under 2259 mm -hmm. if the other provisions of that statute are satisfied. <clears throat> His independent agreement isn't about mandatory restitution. It recognizes that the restitution he's agreeing to pay to any individual is not mandated by statute, but he's nonetheless entering into a separate agreement. Third, it says new losses, which, as Judge Kelly pointed out, is a, uh, a paraphrase of the statute that then is cited, 3664 D5, subsequent losses. So we're talking about... You mean future losses? Future losses. That confused me terribly in the briefing when you okay. kept saying new losses and the statute says future losses. Go ahead. Yes. Yep. And I'm, I'm sorry for not... No, that's okay. It's done by many courts, too, I noticed. Go ahead. So... What that stat it says, as provided for in 3664 D5, and in 3664 D5, new losses or future <laughs> losses or subsequent losses is a term of art that applies to the 60-day limit. But the first paragraph of that very provision says that a district court has up to 90 days to finalize restitution where it cannot be ascertained at the time of sentencing. And that didn't happen here. It, it didn't happen two but, years later or something. But that's but, where Dolan comes. If the court were to reach the question on the 90 days, right. and the defendant sort of suggests it in the alternative is opening brief, right. that's a Dolan question. And the defendant's not contesting that Dolan would give the court authority under a 90-day limit to impose right. restitution. But the point, Your Honor, and to your question, Judge Benton, is that if, if you read that sentence and you apply the plain text, it doesn't apply to his separate agreement under a different statutory provision for non-mandatory -rest restitution for individuals. It applies to victims from, who are uh, entitled to mandatory restitution who discover new losses and are then required, pursuant to 3664 D5, to come forward within 60 days of discovering the new losses. And with respect to the idea of closing a defendant's file, this court is very clear, as our courts around the country, that these restitution provisions are meant for the benefit of victims. They're certainly not meant for the, be the benefit of a defendant who wants to close his file. All this plea agreement reflects is that... Well, everybody's put limits on this, though, too, counsels. There is sure. some benefit to the defendant. Proceed. But the limits <laughs> that are provided by statute and cited for specifically in this, in this plea agreement, in its text, apply to the discovery of new losses by victims under the mandatory restitution provisions. And that's why that sentence, which is important, it's important to advise the defendant that the issue of restitution won't necessarily uh, end at the time of the initial determination, that it could continue if a victim discovers new losses. And that's why that provision is there. But that provision does not in any way relate to 3663A3, the separate, the separate agreement to pay any individual. So in the government's view, whether the court uh, denies the, the claim because defendant has independently agreed to pay any individual restitution as identified by NICMIC uh, or in the course of the investigation, or if the court 
says, well, we're going to examine whether there's a breach of the plea agreement and whether that 60-day provision applies to that, um, that independent agreement. Under either analysis, uh, the district court did exactly the right thing here. And the district court wasn't doing it just because the district court had authority to do it. The district court made a record along the lines of all three, uh, of, all three of your, your Honor's inquiries this morning that the defendant knew of all 21 victims before sentencing and, in fact, knew that the, the amount, mandatory minimum amount, that would be required to be paid. This really was an issue, as you suggested, Judge Shepard, of submitting the documentation. And as the government notes in his brief, the documentation was submitted and provided to the defendant in June, so within about 64 days of the, of the uh, sentencing hearing, the defendant had the information about Patty, about the 21st victim. Mr. Glazer could speak better to this than I, but I think it's undisputed that a significant period of time then elapsed because the government was communicating with Mr. Glazer about his client's intent. Mr. Glazer was making every effort to get uh, clarity from his defendant about whether he intended the, was, was uh, intended to pay it. When the, defendant, when the government found out that the defendant's position was they would have to file a motion, the government filed the motion, and the litigation followed. But the government, in fact, did turn over the documentation uh, within, 90, within 90 days, as the court had directed, but well before the ultimate disposition of, uh, of that initial determination of restitution, uh, which is what the, court, what the government asked the court to affirm here. The government is not running away at all from the plea agreement. The plea agreement is quite explicit about what the defendant agreed to do, and it's the government's position that the district court did not err in holding defendant to the, to the benefit of the bargain struck by the government. And the government here was cognizant that the statutory bases were too narrow in its view, and that it bargained for and received an assurance that defendant relied upon at sentencing in arguing that he was being cooperative with the government and accepting responsibility to provide restitution to victims of all the images he possessed, whether or not they were within the uh, scope of the individual count of conviction, which is how the statutes would have limited restitution. Unless the court has any other questions with respect uh, to this matter, the government would otherwise rely on its brief. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Glazer. I think we should examine the impact of one more sentence in that paragraph where it says, the parties agree that the amount of restitution owed under this paragraph will be determined using 18 U.S.C. 2259 to reflect the full amount of the victim's loss. Next, it goes into that operative sentence where it says, Carneal agrees that if victims are identified. I think that that really puts a hole in the government's argument. If they're going to have this line in here that says, here's how we're going to calculate the loss, it's trying to say that there's only losses to victims versus other people, and but they have this line where they have said how we're going to calculate it because 2259 is the $3,000 um, minimum amount. And the two sentences later goes right to that statement. Carneal understands that the restitution amount for individuals covered by 2259 B2 shall be no less than $3,000 per individual. So I think that that does not follow the logic of what Mr. Jenrick was just saying, that, oh, there's these alternative methods that are allowed by statute but are limited by this plea agreement by their language. And we're just asking you to enforce what they said here. Thank you. Thank you both for the argument. Uh, Mr. Glaser, thank you for your service under the Criminal Justice Act. And case number 23-1627 is submitted for decision by the court. And Ms. O'Keefe, does that conclude the docket for the day and the week? Yes, Your Honor. The court will stand in recess until further call.